communism comes up a lot on this show, and it would be weird if it didn't, because this is a show about lit mostly from China, and China today is the People's Republic of China, and it has been since the 50s. So it would be very bizarre if you never heard the word communism. But what we haven't heard so much about are other threads or strands of radical, radical? radical left-wing thoughts or ideology or literature. And the author we're covering in this episode is Bajin, who's a, an anarchist, a left anarchist specifically. The story of his that we're looking at in this episode isn't really political at all, but we're kind of using his name on it as a springboard to talk about him and his ideas and the context that they um, were in when he was alive. And also how his stories and works lived on after he was gone in things like the Chinese education system in the 90s. And without a guest on the show, I'd probably struggle to dig up any info like that. But um, that's precisely what I do have. I have Luo Tianqi on the show. She was last on on our big mega crossover, but it was really cool to have her uh, here on the show. Just, well, not on her own, because obviously I'm here too. So that's that's that. That's our show. That's our author. That's our book. There's a couple of other things I'd be remiss not to mention before we plow on into the Churchific news. So the first of those things is Catalonia. Uh, you'll see where I'm going with this if you haven't already worked it out. Uh, so during my chat with Tianqi, I kind of uh, implied that anarchists have never taken over any sort of geographic area like communists have in, say, China, and that they've never formed groups. Not strictly true. I, I was remiss to mention a book that was, I don't know if I can say formative, but a book I strongly remember reading. I think it's an interesting piece of left-wing political history. It's Homage to Catalonia by George Orwell. Now, he went out to fight in the Spanish Civil War, which was a coalition of centre all the way through to communist and anarchist people de defending uh, the Republic of Spain versus an uh, insurgent coalition of like Catholic elites and fascists and far, I guess, right-wing uh, forces backed up with uh, air support and other kinds of support from the other fascist powers at the time, Italy and Nazi Germany. And as it so happened, George Orwell um, just, I think, randomly was thrown in with a group called the POUM. I forget what all those letters stand for. The M stood for Marxist, but they were an anarchist group. Um, so they were not uh, strictly affiliated with the Soviet Union, and they were, I guess, anti-state. That's the really important thing. And they did set up a little um, anarchist, I don't know if would state be the right word, an anarchist um, society in Catalonia, this um, region of Spain, which has a strong independent uh, tradition, I suppose, a little bit like my home country of Scotland does. And they did successfully run it until, um, until their side lost the war. And another thing I should correct that comes up in the interview, I kind of implied that anarchists never form top-down organizations, but in the army, the forces that they were using in the Spanish Civil War, they actually did, um, because... <laughs> Like as as you might think, some things need a bit of a hierarchy to work. So their army did have like a standard chain of command in order to be able to fight up to the standard of their opponents. But the thing that make made it a left anarchist army is that uh, they'd abolished the old officer classes. So um, commanding officers weren't all wealthier than the um, the grunts. Basically, uh, I suppose that raises the question of how. How was it decided? Maybe just by experience. But in any case, I just I think that all I'm trying to say is my description of left anarchism in the chat is a little bit simplified 
Um, so if anyone is listening and screaming into their their phone or their computer like you're you're mischaracterizing my favorite ideology granted you you would have a point I was oversimplifying it so there's that um the next thing is that I correct myself during the interview but at first I had misremembered who the translator of Bajin's family is uh, the English translation that is I thought it was Olga Lang for in, until I realized it wasn't uh, you'll hear me on the show realize it's actually Sidney Shapiro so Olga Lang wrote the intro to the edition that I uh, have Sydney was the actual translator and he's a guy I'd love to talk more about on the show but he was working inside China so the translation of family was done for a Chinese publisher the foreign languages press who have done um quite a, or did do quite a lot of interesting English translations of big Chinese works that were kosher or sufficiently kosher for the um for the communist party in like the 50s 60s 70s maybe up to the 80s and 90s I'm not sure but yeah that's uh worth commenting on because it didn't get commented on much in the interview okay and one more thing um mortality and questions around it come up quite a lot in the interview mostly because it's on my mind and I thought I'd flag that because that's going to come up in the next episode as well episode 67 on um well shall I tell you what book it's on no I'll leave that a surprise but it's going to be a bit of a theme between this episode and the next one I guess a reason might be it's not so long ago that my granddad passed away so that's not that you asked for all these personal details but my dad's dad my mom's dad and my stepdad's dad uh, are all gone from this world now so if you're wondering why I get a bit poignant in this what this episode and the next one that's probably why um hopefully that doesn't discolor um your listening hopefully it colors it I don't know I wouldn't want to be using these things to add flavor to the show but I just felt it's worth mentioning maybe you'll see why as the as the chat progresses over this episode and the next one Right, all those points out the way, that was a rather long intro, we'll go on to the Trichific News, the translated Chinese fiction news. We've got five news items on today's Trichific News. The first one, I'm plugging the BBC of all people. I've actually done this before. It's a look at the true story of AQ by Lu Xun. BBC Radio 4 are going to be doing this. It's not actually out yet. This will be broadcast on the 26th of January this year. <laughs> so actually in two days after I'm recording. So you're probably listening to this, the odds are, after this is already broadcast. You might you might have got in before it broadcast, but chances are you, you've already missed the broadcast. But they things like this tend to stay up on the BBC website for a month or months. So hopefully it'll still be up there by the time you're listening or someone will have fiendishly pirated it to YouTube. That'd be nice. But if you do want to listen live, it'll be on the air at 1.45pm, 26th of January. That's a Wednesday. So yeah, it says it's a look at the story, not a reading. I'm not sure who the guest they'll have on to talk about it is. I saw Paul French share it. Maybe it's him, maybe not. Uh, but yeah, just thought I'd flag that in the Trichific News. Now, the next news item, yet again, I'm plugging Cinemist Books, because why not? They're interesting and they're friends of the pod. So Sinoist Books started a blog on medium, medium.com and they've already got several posts up and they've got one quite interesting recent one on a book that they were kind of getting the ball rolling on when I um, when I left them for my next job. It's The Sons of Red Lake by Joe Dashin and I believe this is their, depending on the order of publication, their second or their third Joe Dashin book. The blog is all about the Chinese elemental philosophy 
or the way that the uh, Joe Jashin, the author, uses now uh, what is it? Fire, earth, water, and air to sort of structure the book, and the way that these characters and concepts are presented. Well, both as characters as Hansu, and also I think in the I Ching as well. So yeah, I <laughs> I can't say that I am、um, a master of such topics, but the the、um, blog also is not like. Super heavy. You could read it in a few minutes, but it's it's there. I think it's worth checking out. So do it. Check it out. Okay. The next piece of news, also pretty light,、uh, at least in terms of like concepts that I'm sitting here explaining. It's a Chinese edition of a of a book that I thought was only going to come out in English. So the book is、um, the way spring arrives. Many times, to be fair.、Um, so if if you haven't already heard, it's a collection of sci-fi and other types of speculative, so like genre fiction. Uh, all translated from Chinese, and all the authors and translators、uh, and contributors to there's like because there's an essay or two in there as well. They're all female or non-binary, and I had assumed this would not come out in Chinese for two reasons. One would be it's a compilation of stuff that's already published in Chinese, so it's sort of made with an English language market in mind, curated, I suppose. And the other reason is I. Figured non-binary was too much of an awkward topic, not banned per se, but one that would be <laughs> maybe well, maybe not banned, but maybe hard to publish without sort of trimming off. So I haven't read this thing's blurb. I don't know if it also mentions that it is female and non-binary, or I don't know if they they're going to rephrase that in in a particular way. But yeah, I just I wanted to mention it first because of that, because it disproved my assumption, and also because the cover is just beautiful and it's really different from the、um, English edition. I mean, if, I suppose if you've walked around a Chinese bookstore, that's not shocking. Book design is very different in Asia, but it's it's a really nice cover. It is worth looking up. I've um I've retweeted um a tweet that has photos of it. So you can have a look in my Twitter at Angus Likes Words.、Uh, go directly to the poster. It's the Shimmer Program at Shimmer Program. They、um, I don't know if they're part of Storycom,、uh, Weixiang Wenhua. I think they're called a group that works to promote、uh, Chinese sci-fi in translation and globally. It's something in that sort of network. Anyway, they. I think partnered with the Shanghai Arts and Literature Press to to、um, to publish this one. They they told me in a tweet. So hang on, and I'll 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 just double check really quickly. Yeah, Shanghai and Literary Arts Publishing House. That's who's publishing this Chinese edition. So yeah, do check that out. Okay, fourth news item. Now this one is exciting because it involves the guest on my next show.、Uh, although that will not help you work out what book it's about. That guest is Jenna Tang. And she's appearing alongside Mike Fu. So a past guest of the show and a future guest of the show、uh, have appeared. There a dialogue between them has appeared on WordsWithoutBorders.org. Mike was Jenna's mentor through the Emerging Translation Mentorship Program,、uh, which is run by the American Literary Translators Association. And their mentor, I guess, her mentorship、uh, focused on prose, so fiction and nonfiction, I suppose, from Taiwan. Uh, so yeah, it's I have I admit I have not read this thing all the way through, but it's it's nice and long. It looks like it's a a conversation between friends.、Um, they are two very nice and very smart people, so you should check that out. Okay, last news item. Now this is an interesting one. It's taking us to the world of wuxia, which I've not covered on the show for a while, but I do try and keep an eye on the wuxia news. And this is an interesting one for me as well. You've maybe noticed I'm quite 
I'm my I don't know what you'd call it, but I'm quite tickled whenever um there's an overlap or some kind of a a story or something to look at how China interacts not with the West but with its neighbors. Um so the other sort of East Asian or just other neighboring countries doesn't have to be, could be like Kazakhstan and China. Uh, but like when something China-Korea related happens and it's covered in English, uh, it always interests me, even if it's completely mundane. And the story this time is that um, Wuxiao World, which is a place where you can read Chinese and Korean, but mostly Chinese and mostly Wuxia, but also fantasy web fiction. Uh, you can you can read it all there. That has been bought by a South Korean startup called Kaokao Entertainment. Um, this transaction payment, I guess the 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 deal was a three hundred and seventy five sorry thirty seven point five million US dollar deal that they've used to to buy Wisha World. And the press release, which I'm reading here from uh, TechCrunch, mentions that Kaokao. Did I say Kaka earlier? I meant Kakao. Kakao have um, bought a couple of other programs, uh, programs, platforms, so like websites that, that publish web fiction. One's called Radish, one's called Tapas Media. Now, I talked to um, Deathblade, who's very involved with Wuxia World, about um, about this, and he, he passed on a little to me. First thing he passed on to me was Wuxia World's own press release. So I'll maybe read... Hmm. It's actually a lot more detailed than the TechCrunch press release. It's written by Ren Washing. He's the CEO of Wisha World, and it goes into quite a lot of um, details, and it's quite lighthearted. So if you want um, Wisha World's take on what's going down, you can read all of that. Um, I definitely did like give me something I can quote him on um, about where this is all going. So thanks, thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Deathblade, for, for giving you your take. He said his main thought and what many other translators or fans are wondering about is what this is all going to mean for the Chinese translations and, I guess, translators. He does note that the press release from, from Wuxia World says they're going to expand their Chinese web novels translations. And he added uh, that for years now, Wuxia World, Wuxia World has been cut off from being able to license some of the best content thanks to the debacle with Qidian who I believe are owned by Tencent, as well as other circumstances. So will his big investment deal change that in a good way or will it become worse? And he's expecting to find out one way or the other soon. Now, I also saw the other former guest on the show who's involved with Wuxia World, Et Valier, had some thoughts that she tweeted. So not this is not exclusive. This is just literally on her Twitter account. I'm just going to read that now. Et Valier said... Huge news for the industry as the acquisition goes through for $37.5 million. And personal speak, personally speaking, really wondering how this shakes out for translators. So just sort of echoing the first thing there that uh, Jeremy Deathblade said to me. So yeah, um, keep your eyes on that, I suppose, if you didn't already know and you're interested in translated Wuxia web fiction. <laughs> what else can I say? Um, I guess nothing else because we should go from me talking on my own into the microphone in a room, completely alone, like a crazy person, to my chat with Tian Chi, where, like a normal person, I'm having a conversation. Always good to have in this time of plague. All right, so on the show, we have a returnee guest. It's uh, Luo Tian Chi, Tian Chi, uh, aka Juliana. Great to have you back on the show, I guess, first off. Uh, what, what have you been up to since then? So last time it was our mega podcast, 
with a lot of other podcasters, and that was really really fun.、Um, has it been a, a year now? Something、Almost. like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so pandemic still happening. Just、mm-hmm. wow.、Um, and I am、um, gonna start a new job actually in New York City in Midtown、um, in February. Right now, I'm just doing my visa transitioning, and、um, uh, everything's been good. It's a, a work in finance, so nothing really related to Chinese literature.、Uh, but my podcast has been—I've been updating it and adding new episodes. Recently, I、uh, put in an episode on a Chinese feminist and her writing, and her name is He Yingzhen. So, and I also plan to. Uh, go back and visit my graduate school department, which is、um, the Chinese, well, the East Asian languages and literature、uh, department at Columbia University, and I studied more、uh, on the classical Chinese language and literature side. For people who didn't listen to the mega mega crossover or have bad memories, do you want to remind everyone what your show is? Oh、uh, yes, so everyone, hello. I am Tianqi, and I am the host. For a Chinese language and literature podcast,、uh, me myself, I was born, raised in Beijing, the capital of China. So I grew up,、um, you know, reading a lot of the stories, and、uh, I've always been a huge fan of classical tales. And I came to U.S. for undergrad, and then、um, graduate school. I decided that I still want to learn more about. Um, Chinese literature, so I、uh, went to Columbia and I stayed in New York City after after 2019 when I graduated,、uh, and I've been working in finance, but also I、uh, have a book club and I've been you know reading, doing more readings in my free time. And even though I decided you know not to stay in the PhD route, but I still just really miss my studies, and I guess that's why I started the podcast, kind of. Not only to to let my graduate school essay papers、um, let them like come out of the shelves of the underground basement level of the library, <laughs> but also to just share like strange and like interesting topics from like say anywhere from like Chinese ghost stories to modern Chinese architecture to the first feminist in China. Vietnam is in there as Vietnam, well. Vietnam, China, Vietnam relations, and soon I'll have like U.S.-China relations, which you know I've been kind of you know writing and thinking about for all my years in the U.S.、Um, so welcome for ev- everyone, anyone to、uh, listen to the podcast, and、uh, really welcome some feedback. You can connect with me through the、uh, podcast or on LinkedIn or social media anywhere. Yeah. I think there's one crucial thing we're missing. It's the name of the show. Oh yeah, it's <laughs> it's very generic. It's just、uh, called. Let me see what is it called. <laughs>、um, it's just Chinese literature and culture podcast. I'll put the link for the show in this episode show notes. So if listeners、um, want a quick way to find it, the link will be right、yeah. there. I guess we should talk about our special offer. Very special guy, I think that we're going to talk about this episode.、Mm. It's not Pu Songling. I really, I haven't done a full episode for Pu Songling yet, so that's on my list. But we're doing a very different offer this time. It's Bajin, who I've got written down here, is China's lonely anarchist. 
I think that's probably a fair description. Um, before we get really deep into who he is, um, I guess we should just introduce him. So I've already said he was a lonely anarchist. He was writing, I guess, in the early 20th century. He was a, a left-wing anarchist, so he was sort of working in the context of all the other progressive, lefty, liberal, socialist, communist, and other um, politically motivated writers in the Republic of China. Mm-hmm. But um, he lived a pretty long life, so he was still living, if not working, in the People's Republic as well. He didn't run off to the US or Taiwan. He stayed there. That would be my like really brief intro of the guy i guess i didn't mention any of his works because as will become apparent as we go through this interview i've not read that much by him i'm currently reading one of his big novels but we're not talking about one of his novels in this episode we're just zooming in on one tiny 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 short story that's maybe not even a fiction technically you could say it's non-fiction hong kong nights um xiangang yeah i think it's it's yeah yeah exactly yeah, I missed out the difficult <laughs> word. Yeah, yeah. Well, the character for Ju is the one I remembered, so I reminded myself how to say yeah before we started the interview. Mm. And then of course Saw's Law, I've remembered yeah and forgot Ju. <laughs> but yeah, how how would you um describe Bajin like briefly for listeners? So Bajin uh, somehow, I always feel like he was one of my favorite in elementary school. Even though he was a sophisticated author, I would say, but somehow his short essays, very short. By, by short, I mean like uh, a hundred word in Chinese. Those kind of pieces are always um, appearing on the, uh, the magazines or the textbooks. Um, who was one of the favorite like essay writers for our textbook in, in elementary school and junior high. So he was a Chinese writer and he lived 101 years, which is, wow. you know, a big, big, big achievement, not only for his time before, like, I, I think in general, because think about mm. that. He was born in 1904. It was Republic China and at that time, it was, I mean, obviously he was like malnourished, even though he was born into a fairly well, um, you know, well-off com- uh, family. But to live through the First World War, Second World War, <laughs> Cultural Revolution, or the famine era, and then like, um, he, Civil, yeah, Civil War. War, this, that, this, that, and all the way till the beginning of 21st century, right? So today we're zooming in on his short stories, but he, yeah, we'll we'll do one episode probably in the future on his longer essays and longer um, fiction writing. And he, um, he was really highly regarded in China and he was also very importantly a political activist. Um, he was born in Chengdu, Sichuan, um, which is in the southern part of China. He was born into a five-generation household. And as a kid, he was um, already taught to read and write by his mother. So as you could tell, his mother was also very well-educated. Very rare did a you know woman around then could actually become like a tutor in a sense to read, write, and think. And um, he also had like private tutors um, that would go to his house and teach him foreign languages even. And it wasn't until his death, uh, the death of his grandfather, 
1917, um, which caused a power struggle and ended up with like elder uncle um, emerging as like victorious kind of, <laughs> of, of, you know, a succession story, um, basically. And then he was released kind of from the, this like glorious five generation household to explore the world. And he was um, as a young guy. So young, meaning I, I would think like high school. Um, he was very deeply influenced by a lot of anarchists. And mm. I'm going to butcher the names, but um, of- you have to do a Russian accent. <laughs> uh, Kropotkin. 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 See, I throw my tongue as well. <laughs> and, and he was reading this pamphlet called An Appeal to the Young, <laughs> which, you know, from the name, just like, you know, he, he must have been influenced deeply. And um, mm. he was very impressed by uh, female anarchists as well. There was one, uh, Emma Goldman, and he later oh, yeah. referred to um, her as his spiritual mother. And he even started a lifelong correspondence with her, which is crazy. Think about, you know, just like how many people back then could even write in Russian or English. And, um, and in 1920, when he was like, you know, 16, I think, um, he went to the Chengdu Foreign Languages School, which until now is still a very good school. Um, and that school later on had a very, very famous graduate uh, named Liu Yiting, who you probably don't know, but like in my parents' generation, I guess she, she was in the 90s and she got accepted into Harvard for undergraduate. Um, and her mother wrote this, this book, huh? kind of like the, the hymn of the tiger mother kind of thing. And all oh, yeah. my parents and like my friend's parents all study this book. But anyways, like um, that school is, is a very good school. Um, and then he was there to learn English and he started uh, to become this main figure in this literary journal, Crescent. And he joined an anarchist organization, the Equality Society. And he was distributing propaganda um, pamphlets and stuff. And then he went to Shanghai and enrolled in Dongnan University. And then, and then he learned Spanish and took part in more leftist socialist kind of strikes and like movements and stuff. He was very active. And then he went to France for a whole year. I'll jump in here and say quite a lot of lefty intellectuals from China, I guess, maybe especially Shanghai. We're doing that like off the top of my head, Zhou Enlai yeah. quite famously went to France, but that's not like a coincidence. That's a bit of a, a pattern for that generation of, I guess, maybe well-off left-leaning intellectual young Chinese men. <laughs> yeah, men, exactly. Most of them. Mm. And, and they later on, you know, became household figures. I guess you could say that they were very smart very promising young um, young people to begin with, but then the the study abroad experience really shaped them into who they later would become. Because when he was in France, like he, even though he didn't, well, from his writings, he didn't really enjoy France in the sense that like a tourist or like romantic, all that. He didn't really have a girlfriend or anything. But um, he was lodged at this um, this area 
Um, I haven't been to France for for a long time. I, I went there like a long time ago, but it was the fifth arrondissement, something. It was an area near like the Rue Banville. I don't I don't know. Like、uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm shrugging, listeners. I'm shrugging. But I'm sure it was like a nice. Location, but then he described his life as very boring and monotonous. And then I guess it was partly owing to this boredom that he he had that he began to write his first novel, which was called Mielang.、Um, in English, is destruction. And he continued、mm. his anarchist activism, and he translated actually many many anarchist works, including Kropotkin. <laughs> Kropotkin's like works, including like ethics, and then they're all in Chinese. And then he mailed them back to Shanghai's anarchist magazines for publication. So I guess at a young age, he was what twenty, early twenties. He's like very well connected, at least in the anarchist、um, circle. And he was in contact with many anarchists all over the world. And when he returned to Shanghai in 1926. At twenty eight, which was he said he stayed there only for one year, and he continued writing and working on translations, and then finally published his first novel, destruction,、uh, first work,、uh, destruction,、um, in Fiction Monthly in nineteen twenty nine, and that started his whole, I guess, like whole life、um, of writing fiction. And he was only twenty five years old, so my age. <laughs> Uh, three years younger than me. What have I done with my、uh, life? You've done not as much as、no. him. I, I guess I have. Podcast, I have. Yeah,、um, you you've done so many episodes, and they're so interesting. I listen to all. By the way, thank you, <laughs> thank you very much. That's the that's the really important thing that people listen. Although I think you, we mentioned earlier that it's been about a year or something like that since we did the mega crossover,、mm-hmm. and we're only on like episode. It's like the late sixties. So. Output has slowed down, I think, because I'm I'm busier.、Um, I'm gonna take us back a little bit to Kropotkin,、um, because I guess some listeners might not be so familiar with this anarchism we keep bringing up. They might be thinking of modern day political anarchists like、uh, Antifa people, or they might be thinking of guy like just punks, guys in in leather jackets or what have you.、Um, but it's kind of important. What's、well, not? It's not essential, but it's interesting to know that. This was quite a big political movement at the time that kind of faded away a little bit in a way that's sort of parallel to、um, Bajin's place in the scene of Chinese politics. So if if you guys know much about the wonderful world world of Marxism, you'll know it's kind of got two saints, Marx and Engels, especially Marx. And anarchism, the sort of roots of political anarchism, has I think two big names, which are Kropotkin. And Bukunin, these two Russian thinkers, and they're both really relevant to Bajin because that's his pen name. That's the name he chose. And the two characters, Ba, which is like the really simple Ba, I guess, from Alibaba, and Jin, as in like gold, they're taken from Kropotkin and Bukunin's Chinese names, which are just phonetic translations:、uh, Ba Kuning and Kula Paozijin. I've got that open on Google Translate. That's That's how I got that right off the top of my head. But yeah,、um, and if we were going to try and like quickly describe what the ideas of those thinkers were, like in a really really simplified version, it's kind of similar to the idea of communism. So it's a highly equal society where we want to get rid of 
capitalism, replace it with a more equal system, not about profit, more about social existence, um, against religion, against traditions. But the big difference is anarchism also is against the state. They want to get rid of kind of any top-down organization right away. And generally speaking, it's more individualist. So there was a thing I uh, written by Bajin. I was looking for what of his essays are available out there in English to quickly kind of get. And there's one where he, it's, it's by him, it's called, or at least the English translation of its name is, how are we to establish a truly free and egalitarian society? And a lot of what he describes just kind of sounds like a description of communism, except the big difference is he says, he's like anti-work. He says, we'd all be happier if we cut down our work hours. Mm. Um, so quoting from him here, he wrote, time and time again, one French anarchist has reiterated, every individual need work only two hours a day if all the needs of society are to be met. And Kropotkin too has stated, if everyone works four hours a day, that will be enough, indeed more than enough to meet society's needs. And Bajin keeps writing, I imagine that such a proposition, cutting working hours to the bone, could not help but attract universal support. Without the state and its laws, we would have real freedom. Without the capitalist class, we would have real equality. And like right off the bat, I think that's another important difference from communism, um, which is, I guess, more hard-headed. Like if you think of the Soviet Union and People's Republic of China, as soon as the revolution's done, no, you got to get back to work to start building the new country and creating wealth, buildings, roads, whatever, farms, whatever. Um, whereas I guess basically Bajin, as we're going to see in the story we picked for this episode, is kind of a free spirit. Mm. He seems kind of like he was a guy who maybe didn't have his head in the clouds, but was kind of a star, based on what I've seen, kind of a gentle, a gentle, sweet guy at his core from what I can see in his writing. Mm. He doesn't seem like a, a really tough-headed intellectual, like, I don't know, Lushun or something. Mm. He seems a lot more cuddly based on what I've read. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I've read a little bit about, um, well, obviously, I can't time travel and go back and ask him about his opinions. And, mm. um, but famously, when in 1945, um, August, this is documented, and he, he was in Chongqing and he met up with Mao. Uh, Mao Tung, right. Chairman Mao, and and the first thing that Chairman Mao asked him was like, "奇怪，别人说你是个无政府主义者." He says, "Oh, strange. Other people say you're anarchist." <laughs> and then Bai Jin replied, "Oh yeah, I heard you used to be as well." And, uh. <laughs> and because of his anarchism, which was interpreted in the critics' circle in like very different ways, and like um, he was kind of. Uh, exile from the group and then rewelcomed and then he had like Lu Xun as his supporter and this and that mm. but then th throughout his life he at least had like five or even more uh, rounds of being kind of uh, how do you say like uh, being criticized being um, just outright kind of um, put down by by the general public yeah, like harassed. Yeah, harassed. Like cultural revolution during that time, he was in the uh, living with the cows for like in the cow shed. Yeah. yeah, and he he suffered really a lot. And um, I forgot to mention that even though he lived one hundred and one years, the last like twenty some years, 
he had very severe mental issues, and and he just couldn't he couldn't write, and he didn't really remember things, and it wasn't really living as a human human. And mm-hmm. he,、um, I guess we could talk about anarchism more, but he also famously said that I believed is my own version of anarchism. Um, and that's after after you know the new China has has like established, and it was like sixties and seventies after the horrible like cultural revolution that he went through. So maybe he was kind of、uh, washing himself a little bit from the previous like you know his his revolutionary thoughts that were that weren't accepted, but also.、Mm-hmm. I think he meant it, like you said. He's like a kind of strikes you as a free spirit, and I think his anarchism.、Um, he Vatin likes it because it emphasizes、um, its emphasis is on this personal freedom. But then he was also thinking that this personal freedom doesn't equal political freedom completely. So his earlier、right. writings, he was actually. Critical of the U.S. kind of democracy, that kind of freedom, and he thinks that、mm-hmm. um, people need a great organization to guarantee the freedom, in a sense. So I, I wonder what he would say about the Communist Party post, I guess, the '90s. You know, since the the economy started to take off and everybody's like living standards kind of became better, and.、Um, Yeah, so so surprisingly, I think Bazin's、um, anarchism points to a sort of like collectivism, almost in a sense, and and where you know each individual has freedom, but then you kind of have to、uh, put these kind of freedom together, and you, you give out some part of you to reform、yeah. the society. Yeah, that's the the part of this sort of old school anarchism that breaks my brain is that. They don't like organizations hierarchy. Like it, it says in the intro、uh, to the translation of family, which I'm holding up to the camera. Oh,、um, beautiful! I'll, I'll talk a bit more about this, but yeah, it's a lovely. It's an old paperback as well, it's secondhand. But、um, it mentions in there that he never joined any writers' groups because, as an anarchist, he's just skeptical of groups in general.、Mm-hmm. But you're right; it's like a leftist. This leftist anarchism. Once you've achieved your stateless revolution, it's not a you know every man for himself society. You're supposed to, as a collection of free individuals, sort out、um, some kind of equality, and that's where I think, from my point of view, it becomes a daydream. Like I don't see how anyone could do that. It's just my opinion. But you're right to say he's, especially when he's in this sort of younger. I guess in his youth, where he's following quite closely to these original ideas from these Russian thinkers, it's not freedom. His definition of freedom isn't the Western liberal definition of freedom. He's against that liberal version. I've actually got another. There's a section from that、um, same essay that I can quote in English to like spell that out. He says these days the words freedom and equality are part of the vocabulary of each and every one of us. But make a few inquiries and ask what is freedom, and you will be told. Freedom means freedom of opinion, freedom of the press, freedom of association and assembly, freedom of secrecy of correspondence. Ask what is equality, and you'll be told all citizens are equal before the law, with no difference between the highborn and the yokel. Now, such narrow definitions have nothing to do with true freedom, true equality. Don't believe me? Then have a read of the following. Blah 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 blah. blah. 
and I guess he's saying, yeah, the the version of freedom they have in Western capitalist countries is not good enough. He's harder to please than that, I guess. The last thing I wanted to say about all the politics was, um, so I kept saying that anarchism was such a big deal in this sort of late 1800s. I don't know if it's just the late 1800s, but this period of going into the 20th century, anarchism was a great big movement. If you read through the history books at the time of European history, there were anarchist terrorists, like bombing, throwing bombs at heads of state and royal families trying to overthrow societies, they seem to be the bigger threat to the status quo than communists. But you might not be surprised to hear that the more organized group, the communists, were the ones who actually managed to take over certain countries. Mm. I guess anarchism fizzled out, maybe for one reason, because it's less, you know, it's not as focused on organizing. But also, if we look at what happened to Bajin in China, places that were on, began, what am I trying to say? People that would have begun on the same side of him, like Mao Zedong, mm. ended up shutting him down. I'm mean, the dictator of all of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The kind of anarchist Bajin was doesn't really exist prominently today. The threads are still there, but it's sort of a, I feel like it's sort of like looking into a withered branch of like Christianity or something. It's sort of mm. a, it's a history lesson learning about someone like this. Whereas, I don't know, learning about Lu Xun or something doesn't, his ideas don't seem so of a past time. I don't know if that makes mm-hmm. sense. They feel a bit more eternally relevant. We could keep going and going and going and going about this. Yeah, um, for sure. But we should look at the story. Yeah. But before we go on to Hong Kong Nights, is there anything else you want to th- throw in there? Well, speaking of Lu Xun, when Lu Xun um, you know, passed away, uh, Ba Jin was one of the 16 people designated to hold his... Uh, his Coffin? Coffin, yeah. He's one of the right. 16 people. So so even though, you know, people criticized Bajin for his ism, ism, but Lu Xun obviously loved him and thought that he belonged to, you know, the revolutionary camp or revolutionary writers. So I know I said we should move on, but there's one other <laughs> one other thing that occurred to me. And it's as you were telling us his sort of life story, I was thinking, although I'm only a third of the way through reading this book, family, um, that's basically at least this book or at least the start of it is sort of autobiographical or semi-autobiographical and if if anyone listening is interested in the new culture of movement um and that period of chinese like intellectual literary history where um young people were interested in combining literature and politics and all these intellectual interests and trying to you know, do progressive things for their country and so on. Um, this book's really interesting because it's from the perspective of like two, I guess they're like young teenage boys, or maybe, I don't know exa- how, exactly how old they're supposed to be. I would guess maybe like 14, 15, 16, mm-hmm. who are buying, uh, they're living in Chengdu or Chengdu, as it's called in the book, because it's using Wade Giles. Wow. Um, so the, on the book cover, it doesn't say Ba Jin, it says Pa Chin. Oh. Uh, but yeah. And it's not the Gao family, it's the Kao family. But anyway, it's about these two boys who are reading uh, New Youth and New Tide, a thing we didn't mention. And I only, I think, properly learned yesterday when I was doing more preparation is that Ba Jin didn't participate in in, in that movement directly because he was a bit young. I think he was still at school, but it had a big influence on him because um, he was reading this stuff voraciously. And you sort of see a reflection of that in family. The book 
Yeah, family is his most proud、um, and his favorite work, and is、uh, I think generally regarded as his best work. Definitely worth、mm. a read. Yeah, and it's just about the only book of his really easy that's really easy to get in English translation. There are some others, but I think frustratingly, it's part of a trilogy, and I think this is the only one of the trilogy that you can get in English. I think certainly the only easy one.、Uh, but yeah. We're, we're talking about the stories now. That's that's good. Let's keep keep moving. So our stories:、yeah. Hong Kong Nights, Xiangang, Jie. And what we were going to do first is read this story because it's mega short.、We're, I'm really not joking here. And Tianxi, you mentioned you came to know Bajin through school and his short pieces at school. So what we're going to do for the listeners is give you guys a treat. We're going to read it bilingually. I guess. It's a Chinese text, so maybe you should go first, Tianqi, and read. Right、um, here. Yeah, and then I'll follow up. So this is the original. 我们搭小火船去广州，晚上十点钟船离开了香港。开船开船的时候，朋友红在舱外唤我。我走出舱去，便听见红说：“香港的夜很美，你不可不看。”我站在舱外，身子靠着栏杆，望着渐渐褪去的香港。海是黑的，天也是黑的。天上有些星星，但大多都不明亮。只有对面的香港成了万颗星点的聚合。山上有灯，街上有灯，建筑物上有灯。每一盏就像一颗星，在我的肉眼里，它比星星更亮。它们密密麻麻地排列着，像是一座一座新的山，放射着万丈光芒的新的山。夜是静寂的、柔和的。从对面，我听见一点声音。香港似乎闭上了它的大口，但是当我注意到那座万丈光芒的新的山的时候，我仿佛又听见了那无数的灯光的私语。船在移动，灯光也跟着在移动起来，而且电车、汽车上的灯也在飞跑。我看见他们时明时暗，就像人在眨眼，或者像他们在追逐、在说话。我的视觉和听觉混合起来，我仿佛在用眼睛听了。那一座山，那一座新的山，并不是沉默的，在那里正奏着出色的交响乐。我差不多到了忘我的境界，船似乎在转弯，新的山越来越小了，但是我的眼里还留着一丝灯光，还闪着动人的乐曲。Okay, <laughs> I'm a bit um, I'm a bit worse than like when I was in elementary school, I guess. Because this kind of reading, you you would do like in class a lot, and usually the teacher would pick on one student and then like say stop and then get another student to do the next paragraph. You usually can't say like a single word wrong, or else you'll be like asked to kind of reread the the sentence or something. I've sat in a lot of Chinese、uh, classrooms、um, that I've shared with a, a Chinese homeroom teacher. So I'm teaching the English, and then sometimes other subjects as well. But I'm there in the room when the Chinese, you know, the Chinese class is on. And most of those classes I was sitting in on were for first, second, yeah, not the third graders, not the middle school kids, because I would be in my own room. But I saw a lot of the first and second graders reading their stories. So it wasn't really Bajin. It was more like. Xiao Song Shu Shuo, like a little squirrel and a rabbit or something. But yeah, I remember how saying using the word robotic would be a bit mean. I think, but yeah, it was perfect. You could see, you could, I was I was seeing the characters just like they were in the school book, like in the grid. 
one, 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 one. Exactly. Yeah. I think I, that's a high, high standard to hold yourself to. Yeah, I, I almost didn't. Well, I, I could have read it in like the elementary school kid way, but then I was like, Ugh, I, a, I would have goosebumps. But, but like I would just read one <laughs> sentence the way that I would have read if I were like nine years old. So, for example, okay. Um, 我差不多到了忘我的境界。So <laughs> you're supposed to read like every word with so much emotion out of your little body, out of your, you know, almost non-existent life experience. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, Bajin seems pretty mature, even for late primary school. Mm, yeah. Because I wasn't, I think in the Scottish education system I went through, hmm. If we did anything that wasn't written intentionally as children's literature, it would be like ah, less than I have fingers on my hand through all of primary school. Maybe just some traditional Scott, or not traditional, Scots poetry, um, stuff by Robbie Burns that's mm. not in English, English. That was like the only stuff for adults we were really reading. So um, you weren't reading yeah. David Hume, like we all imagine <laughs> from first grade? <laughs> no, uh, in high school, well, my high school, I think it was just sort of chance based on like which authors my high school teachers liked. But um, through high school, the novels we did were all American. In the classes I was in, were all American or Scottish, mm. uh, written in English, Scott. But we, I don't think we did a single. No- oh, no, that's not true. In my last year, we did um, Pride and Prejudice, mm. uh, Jane Austen. That's English. Um, but yeah, it was all um american or scottish novels and for poems it was a mix of english yeah not all all british poems by scots or or english people mm-hmm. and all all the plays except like two or three were all williams but william shakespeare mm-hmm. i did a huge amount of william shakespeare more than more than normal for a british kid mm-hmm. so it was a very strange mix uh some of it was like shakespeare's that's pretty uh, difficult that's hard. Like we were doing Shakespeare in second year of high school. So like that would be like middle school in China or America. Mm-hmm. That was like being thrown in at a deep end. But um, the idea of doing a, a, a leftist anarchist age nine, that's, yeah. that's beyond yeah. me. Yeah. I, I would, um, we sh- I know we should move on to the, to the story, but I would add a little bit, but um, just in the curriculum setting um, in China, like, because you have, Chinese and then math, English as the three most important main subjects. Um, you get all your Anglophone, all your Western mm. literature, philosophy, sociology things from that English class. And you get all your kind of love your country, love your party, national <laughs> and your Bajin and Lu Xun and all that from the Chinese um, Chinese class. So, so in a way, I feel... You know, strangely, growing up in the 90s, uh, like I was born in 1995, it's the period that China was most uh, in love with all things West, kind of. If you ask right now, like the kids born in like the 2013, for example, and they are like almost 10 years old, they're in elementary school, and they are having the education that are kind of, you know, anti-American. There's there's these kind of sentiments now, um, but mm. definitely weren't true when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I think we, you know, it was a very lucky time to, to be able to view the world the way they are, in a sense. 
to to yeah. be encouraged by the teachers and by the government to appreciate like um, foreign cultures as as the way they are. Yeah, it's interesting that you got uh, in one arm you got your injection of like local patriotism mm-hmm. and maybe a little bit of authoritarianism, and then in your other arm you get the injection of interest in the outside world and some Western, I guess, liberal outlooks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't like. I don't think the British or Sc- Scottish system I went through was delivering us any hard contrasts like that. Um, no, I mean, I think it would be just as interesting for me to chat to an English person about this because um, the Scottish system, I think, I did get quite a lot of Scottish nationalist stuff kind of mm. shot into me. British nationalist stuff, maybe only very passive, like probably passive, a, a passive like perspective, but nothing waving the union jack saying how great the country was or anything mm. um but that that would be another completely different podcast yeah. um shall i read this thing in english yes actually which year was it written do you know um good question um the pdf, PDF i'm looking at uh, it's got the chinese name the english name uh and then it tells us who the translators are it's a joint translation by Zhu Jiyu and don G. Cohn. Oh, yeah, here at the bottom. So we have a footnote. Bajin passed through Hong Kong in May 1933 on his way from Shanghai to Guangzhou. Mm-hmm. The essays he wrote on the strip are collected in Lutu Suibi. Um, I'm Suibi. not sure what that translates uh, as. It's like essays, uh, travel essays. Right. Okay. So there's a whole book of, mm-hmm. of these this stuff. Is British Hong Kong that we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the 30s. Um, I guess I have. I don't really know my Hong Kong history. I know it's 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 a uh, quite a long time before the Japanese roll in and snatch it away. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, if I if it's anything like Shanghai at this time, it must have been interesting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, I'll I'll just plow on, or we'll, or we'll be at this forever. Mm-hmm. So here here's how it goes in English. We embarked on the steamer to Guangzhou at ten o'clock in the evening. The boat left Hong Kong. My friend Ah called to me from outside my cabin just as the boat was leaving. I came out and heard him say, Nights in Hong Kong are very beautiful. Don't miss them. Leaning against the railing outside my cabin, I watched Hong Kong recede in the distance. The sea was dark, as was the sky, and there were some stars out, but few were bright. In contrast, Hong Kong itself was an endless panorama of stars. There were lights on the mountains, on the streets, and on the buildings. Each light was like a tiny star, but to me they seemed brighter and more splendid than stars. In their, yeah, in their dense array, they resembled a mountain of stars shining endless beams of light in the night sky. The night was still and soft. Not a sound was to be heard from the shore. Hong Kong seemed to have shut its great mouth. Yet when I gazed upon the scintillating mountain of stars, I could hear the lights whispering to each other. The rocking of the boat created the illusion that all the lights were moving. The headlights on the trams and cars darted about. I could see them winking like human eyes, or perhaps they were chasing or talking to each other. Sight and hearing became confused, and I seemed to be listening with my eyes. The mountain of stars was hardly silent. It was performing a great symphony. I almost forgot where I was. The boat seemed to be turning. The mountain of stars was beginning to shrink. But I could still see the stretch of golden lights in my eyes and hear that wonderful symphony. When the boat passed through mountains, or islands, I'm not sure, Hong Kong finally disappeared. 
There were no lights at sea and our boat was shrouded in thick darkness. The mountain of stars had now become a distant and indistinct dream. I stood there gazing into the distance, trying to find that mountain of stars again, but I could see nothing. It was rather cool outside and the wind blowing on my head was uncomfortable. So I returned to the cabin. It was another world there full of noise and excitement. The moment I stepped into the cabin, I asked myself, was everything I just saw an illusion? And I was worried I would have nothing to say about this story, but I have so much to say. Yeah. Yeah. I guess first thing I can say is a lot of my time in China, I spent traveling um, mostly on the trains, but I did do a trip um, where I went. So not just around China, but I, I really wanted to see the border with North Korea. Mm -hmm. So I took the plane up to Shenyang, spent a couple of days in Shenyang, hopped on the Gautier to Dandong, spent a few days in Dandong. Then I did a boat, uh, yeah, got the boat from Dandong to uh, South Korea, not the other Korea. Mm -hmm. And then a few days in Seoul, got the train to Busan with no zombies on it, mm -hmm. spent a few days there, took a much shorter boat trip to Fukuoka in Japan, uh, spent time in Fukuoka, went to Osaka, spent time in Osaka, and then took a boat trip of two nights. Don't do this. It's a bad wow. one. <laughs> but uh, from Osaka to Shanghai, back into Shanghai, up the uh, up the Huangpu. And there's a couple of moments on that last boat trip that feel like this story. The first was really like, what's real? And I was literally like surrounded. I think we were going through lots of small islands that were kind of like mountains. And it was a perfect time of evening where it was getting very dark, but the sky was very colorful. And it was like a combination of colors I don't think I've seen before. And it was like, where the hell is this on the map? I've got no idea because I had no signal. But that was like a dream because you're on the roof of the boat. You're there surrounded by the night. And then to get back to my cabin, I got to go inside back into artificial light. And yeah, they're just, it is like waking up. Like, I don't know, in the morning when you're waking up from the dream and you're able to go between your dream mm. and your, your waking life in the mm. bed. And they're just totally disconnected. So there's that. And then the final leg of the journey coming up the Huangpu, looking at Shanghai, seeing Shanghai. I'd seen Shanghai from so many angles. The street, um, ferries going across the river, the top of the towers in Lujiazui, the skyline, but I'd never seen it going up the river. And it felt totally surreal because, again, it was back on the roof of the boat after like a whole 24 hours in a tiny cabin. Seeing this place from a totally unfamiliar angle was also quite disorienting, like beautiful but make, making me question what's real and i'm gonna i'm gonna keep going here because i have two experiences a bit like this in or outside hong kong mm -hmm. but on the plane not on the yeah. boat because i guess not many people go around the world by boat anymore mm -hmm. but when i was first coming to china uh, to do a really crappy teaching english job i was not a very experienced traveler so i booked a really stupid flight route i went from edinburgh to uh, either London or um, Amsterdam, I'm not sure. And then from there to Doha in Qatar. Oh my gosh. Then from there to uh, Hong Kong. Um, then Hong Kong to Hangzhou because it was Hangzhou I was trying to get mm. to, and that was shit. I should have uh, I should have uh, flown to Shanghai and got the. You have to stop somewhere on that route. Uh, I I think you can do Amsterdam to Shanghai. Mm but you can't go directly from, from Scotland to Shanghai. There's no such flight. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that was a horrible journey. But so my first contact with China there was Hong Kong. And it's 
it's just such an unusual city, isn't it? Because it's like sort of built into the hills in a bay. And remember, I'm from far, a small town in Western Europe, so I'm not used to seeing zillions of skyscrapers. Yeah. Concrete jungle. Yeah, more than New York, I feel, is the real concrete jungle. Yeah, yeah. I guess I had been to Japan, but um, to Kobe, not, not to any big cities except Kobe, which really doesn't compare to Hong Kong in terms of the... Mm. The towers. Um, it makes it look like you know. I guess even in Bajin's time, he was like, "Oh, these are like stars shining. That's all the light coming、mm. out of the windows from these towers." Yeah. Well, this this was daytime, which you know made the towers even more shocking because I could see their full details. But yeah, the other time I got a weird feeling leaving Hong Kong was、um, it was also in daytime. No, yeah, it was leaving, not arriving. But I looked and saw the、um, you know a big part of.、Um, The world's supply chains that got so badly disrupted during the worst of the pandemic. I saw the lines of shipping shipping container boats trailing out of、uh, Hong Kong Harbor like、mm-hmm. ants. And Shanghai has it certainly has a lot of those boats, but nothing like what Hong Kong had there from the sky. I think the only time I ever saw anything like that was Singapore.、Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was、um, also like uncanny because that these ships are the things that are sending things around the world from like the world's factories to. Where we are, <laughs> but it's this invisible thing. That's where your canned、uh, canned chili comes from. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and all my stupid, all the all, stupid all things the that come out of your、yeah. Christmas crackers. <laughs> Sorry for going on so long、oh, there,、no. but that's that's how I connect with the story. Really, I think this is very like very much what、um, I think. Even as an elementary school、um, student, you're supposed to get from reading a passage like this by Bazin. Is in Chinese, it's like what we call. Um, 写景抒情 So he's writing about all these sceneries that he saw, but really he was just conveying the emotions, like kind of press、mm. in his his heart, and he had all these kind of emotions, even though he didn't really specifically say, "Oh, I feel I miss Hong Kong so much," or "I feel like、um, it's it's part of my you know memory now," or things like that. But you could feel it. With, with his writing of of the stars of how they're tinkling and how they're like human like almost, and he says, "I I almost forgot about myself at that moment, right?" So so the I actually found some of the、um, what you would see in exams if you were tested on on this passage in China, and you would be asked like, "Oh, what is one sentence that he wrote within this passage within this essay?" That could summarize the whole thing, and also、um, what is、um, what is like the、um, the word or the sentence that he summarized just from the point of view when he, like how he wrote about light in Hong Kong and things like that, and he like、um, you know used this、um, technique, this writing technique that、um, is basically by like.、Um, Describing the visual and the hearing of of these sceneries, that he posits the the reader into like one point, and then this、uh, describe like what you would see, things like this. So yeah, very much.、Um, in a sense, it's not the profound profound kind of nationalist、um, essay <laughs> that you would expect from Lu Xun to to like make you realize that. Know, your country, your people are mad and they're <laughs> they're like sick and things like that. But but you would you would get a feeling that 
oh, there's so much that he writes um, that he、mm. feels, and you could write like this as well. Like for a young reader,、um, you will look at something Bazin writes, and then you would inevitably adopt some of his writing style in your own writing. I think that's what Bazin means for a lot of young young reader and writers. I got two th- two things two thoughts to follow up on that.、Um, one is so use the word nationalism. I guess we talked a bit about that. How a lot of the young intellectuals at the time had, I guess, nationalist or patriotic sentiments because they're worried about their country. And this is an interesting one for, like, I guess, your average default Western. Lefty liberal who will usually by default not be so keen on the idea of nationalism, but that word has different meanings in different contexts. Like I'm Scottish, and in Scotland these days, nationalism is usually tied in with something people would think of as being vaguely lefty.、Mm-hmm. It can take many forms. I guess a big difference is if the country is, if the country is the boot, or if the country is under the boot, then that could d- decide whether the nationalism is is which way it leans. But There is actually an essay I found. It's one of the ones that is translated to English by Bajin, where he、um, it's called "Nationalism and the Road to Happiness for the Chinese," where he actually kind of rejects it. He says he doesn't like it, which seems kind of odd because in other parts of his writing, like in in family, that the young men are. I, th- I forget if they call it nationalism or patriotism. I think they call it patriotism, but they talk about wanting to help China. But in this little essay, what does what does he say? He says nationalism is in fact the obstacle to human progress. Being a member of this society, I cannot accept nationalism against my conscience. Conscience, I have to argue against nationalism and demonstrate the real road to happiness for the Chinese. My words are sincere, and I wish to receive sympathy from people who refuse to ignore their conscience. And before that, he's I guess he's.、Um, Given a description of nationalism, which I guess a lot of us might have heard before, that it divides people, it、um, promotes like war, aggression, small-mindedness. When really everyone should think they are, you know, one race, human race.、Mm-hmm. That would be the sort of lefty anarchist perspective. But that doesn't mean he's a hypocrite. I think that just means this is a complicated concept, and what it would mean to be a young, patriotic, progressive Chinese person who wants to help their country might be a bit. It wouldn't be the same as someone who's joined the Guomindang、mm. Party to pursue like a very different idea of nationalism,、mm. which is trying to, I guess, would be maybe more conformist or、um, trying to make China the Han Chinese country and not the more complicated country it really is.、Yeah. So that was one thing,、uh, but the other thing is totally unrelated, almost opposite.、Um, it's something I thought about reading the story that brought me back to like. Instances long before I knew I was going to go live and work in China, where some Chinese culture filtered through to me, and that's I guess、um, the old story that loads of people will know about Zhuangzi and the butterfly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe people listeners saw that coming when I was talking about waking up from a dream.、Mm-hmm. Where the story goes, I'm sure I don't even have to recount it, but this philosopher Zhuangzi was having a dream where he's a butterfly, and he wakes up. And he's not sure whether he's Zhuangzi dreaming he's a butterfly, other butterfly dreaming that he's、uh, that it's Zhuangzi.、Mm-hmm. And then in the English translation, the next line is always, "This is called the transformation of things." And the thing that if I the only clever, in quotes, clever literary analysis I can really do of the story is that as it goes on, different things start transforming into other things. The、um, the stars become a mountain. 
the like everything everything from the author's perspective is turning into something else and he even says pretty directly i seem to be listening with my eyes so even the senses are transforming and yeah then he he goes back into his cabin and he asks himself was it all an illusion and the only the last thing i'd say is i wondered if like this the story of drunks on the butterfly is something Westerners latch latch onto something superficial that isn't going to crop up in a lot of Chinese literature I've read, but I think in a lot of translated Chinese lit I've read, this thing does come up a lot. Like, what the hell's reality? Life is fleeting. Life's but a dream. I'm sure loads of writers touch on that, but in the Chinese lit I've read, I think it does come up. Not in every writer, but like people often confront this. Like, how the hell do you know what's real when life is so hard to hold onto? And I feel that vibe in this story. Yeah, I think that、um, I definitely agree. I think that there is like a general kind of almost so common sentiment that when you live in China, I guess it's because there are so many people. So many, so many people. You are surrounded by kind of different and like kind of exciting in a sense, but also、um, just day to day, like you feel like. Wow, there's so much like senses that like things, colors, sounds, and all this to take in, and it's a common phenomenon to to feel like, oh, am I living in a dream, or am I, you know, is this all a dream? So a lot of、uh, um, writers, even in Bazin's time and like later on. Often write something like kind of sentimental along the line of oh I almost forgot about myself I'm in the state of、um, annihilation or like、um, you know things like that and like I I almost don't know where I am right now things like that I think it's more like、um, a、mm. sentiment thing less philosophical but there are definitely there's definitely roots that go back to to Laozi and all the all the philosophers and. Almost kind of like a layer of culture that you grew up in, so it's like kind of grows in you, and the sentiment is kind of you know growing in you, just like how democracy kind of is like within the blood of a lot of my friends, even though they don't they don't study political science or they don't they don't really think about politics that much, but their default state has that kind of sentiment and setting. I think I probably talked about this on the show before, but、um, I, maybe I haven't actually. But I think one of the greatest gifts you can anyone can give to themselves is well, living somewhere that is very different, or just learning about a significantly different culture. Not just、mm-hmm. to learn about the other culture, but to get an outside a perspective from somewhere else on your own default settings, because it's. Fiendishly hard to have a look at them from another angle. Like it's trying to look at the back of your head in a mirror. If you know what I mean, it's、um, <laughs> you need to add another mirror to to see it. Otherwise, you'll never get the right angle.、Um, yeah, that's a that's a great way to put it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And for for Bajin, I feel. Oh, sorry. No, 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 no. Go for it. Yeah, for Bajin, I feel like when he was reading, you know, Russian writers, he must have felt、um, like completely kind of. Indulged in in that、uh, culture, in that like revolutionary mind, and in that sense,、um, and I think without getting to know the the different places and the writers around the world that he he knew back then, he wouldn't have produced、um, as authentically to himself and to others, like as authentic and as、um, interesting, exciting 
um, writing pieces that he he produced later on. And he famously think um, this is reading some of his interviews. He thought that the highest state of literature is no skill, <laughs> is the consistency between the literature itself and the people, and which is to say, words and deeds must be consistent and must be、uh, matched. And what a writer does in life and what he writes in his works also must be consistent. He must express his personality. And not lie, and he must tell the truth to the readers. And I think that's that's consistent in in most of his fiction writings, except for the period where he had to kind of write propaganda sort of thing to avoid being prosecuted during the Cultural Revolution. I think the most、um, important part of his writing style is how almost kind of plain it is. How calm and how careful his observations are towards, you know, scene sceneries, or say in another his essay, which is a textbook classic called、um, "Sunrise in、uh, in the Ocean," and it was、um, just really like the beautiful narrative, simple, nothing flowery, but it's just about the natural scene of looking at a sunrise on the ship, and I think. This really says much about his his personality as well. That he wants to tell the truth, and he wants to you know tell people what actually kind of happened. And his characters, if you read Jia, if you read、um, Family, you also see that they're kind of like very very real, not not too complicated, not like you know Dostoevsky, like kind of crazy characters with with lots of. You know, emotional, philosophical turmoil inside, but、um, at the same time, the the characters have distinct personality traits, and they they have a lot of anger and frustrations, and they tell to to the world in a sense through his his writing, and and that also touched people a lot, and it's very. Much with like、uh, emotional writing, with yeah, with emotions and with like、um, his life experiences. As you were talking there, I remembered something I found、um, when I was looking for stuff to help me read up on Bajim. I found Google's really good for doing this. For if you type in like so and so essay PDF, it's not great at giving you PDFs hidden behind paywalls. It seems to be quite good at giving you. People's master's theses or PhD theses that aren't necessarily published in journals, but are up on like university websites. And there was one that、uh, Google turned up.、Um, which university is it from? It's I think it's is it Massachusetts University of Massachusetts Amherst.、Uh, in the year two thousand, someone called Larissa Castriota wrote、um, an essay on Bajin, but I, I didn't read the whole thing because it's what is it like? It's ninety-one pages. I did not read ninety-one pages to prepare, but、um, I did find a funny little fact、um, in it. It's, it cites a survey from nineteen thirty-seven, which says that among college and high school students, Bajin. Well, the survey showed up that Bajin was the second most popular author after Lu Xun. And、mm. the reason I bring that up is you're saying he writes in a very simple style, and you can see that it's sort of straightforward and earnest personalities there. And based on what I've read. Of family so far, at least in the translation, I've been finding it helpful to think of it almost as like teen fiction or YA. 
um, because that makes me read it faster than if I'm imagining it's a literary classic. Uh, it, it's reminding me a bit of one literary classic I did read in translation, um, Dream of the Red Chamber. Mm-hmm. And I tried to read it for like the fun of the story. Um, and that got me quite far. But then when I started thinking of it as a classic, I slowed down and got really bored. But um, mm-hmm. the, the point is, I just wanted to say this, yeah, it's it's pretty readable and it's not hard to see why um, people enjoyed it because it's not a big philosophical rant. He's clearly good at writing a story and drawing characters and keeping things fairly simple. Um, mm-hmm. Speaking of family, I want to read a couple of things from the introduction yeah. uh, by this Olga Lang. There's a couple of things in here about Bajin uh, that really warms me to this guy um, and the life he seems to live because he seems so different from some of the more hardcore thinkers of the time. He just seems like his heart's in the right place at a very really basic level. Because there's, there's there's a bit here where Olga Lang's writing. Um, she writes, in general, in spite of his great success and his reader's devotion, Bajin was not happy was not at all convinced of the usefulness of his literary work. It's also evident from his writings that he felt guilty about drifting farther and farther away from his work in the anarchist movement after he became a popular fiction writer. In almost all his writing, Bajin called on his readers to rebel against the establishment and to recognize the progress. That progress can only be achieved at a price of great sacrifice, but he felt it hard to demand these sacrifices from the young people uh, whom he loved so much. Moreover, he he often asked himself, what right do I uh, have to do that? What did, I, what did I sacrifice for the sake of the people? All the, and then Olga keeps going. All these scruples and torments show what an honest and sensitive person Bajin was. And that makes me a bit emotional just reading that because I know this sounds overly sincere, but if you know your 20th century Chinese history, people like this put themselves through the ringer over and over and over again and you know get so far and then only for things to go awfully wrong. Um, by no fault of her own and yeah it's it is add on that yeah what was during the cultural revolution died because of you know the torture that from the time and because he was Bazin was considered you know anti-revolutionary and all these like all these hats or you know thrown onto him and his family so um really 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 difficult living through that time as a as someone with conscious and mm-hmm. someone with great you know literary ambition and you have to imagine you have to write something counter to what you believe in and as someone like like Bajin who who stays true to himself and his work and that must be really hard but then on the one hand you need to live mm-hmm. <laughs> and you have your family who needs to live on the other hand you have your dream of you know ambitions and stuff yeah it's like you read my mind there because the next thing in this intro i wanted to read was about it's an interesting thing so at the end of the intro olga lang says now that the cultural revolution is coming to an end but it's only like 1969 or something or 72 when she's writing so really it wasn't over quite yet but anyway Mm -hmm. she's describing something that would have happened not so long before she's doing this translation actually uh so this is what she describes um these members of the new generation of Chinese youth who, whom Bajin loved so much ransacked the writer's house and destroyed his Chinese art objects as well as his library, which was said to contain one of the best collections of anarchist literature in the world. Similar outrages were perpetu- uh, yeah, perpetrated against hundreds and perhaps thousands of writers, professors and other intellectuals. Finally, on June 20th, 1968, Bajin was dragged to the People's Stadium of Shanghai those present and those who watched the scene on television, so it was broadcast, 
saw him kneeling on broken glass and heard the shouts accusing him of being a traitor, an enemy of Mao. They also heard him break his silence at the end and shout at the top of his voice, you have your thoughts and I have mine. This is the fact and you can't change it even if you kill me. Mm -hmm. Fucking hell. That's, I've, I always thought it was only some of the stories from Tiananmen 1989 that could make me, that I'd be worried about reading about on the show because they would make me stop and need to pause. But this has a similar effect. This is so sad. It's really, really sad. And my favorite, I mean, my favorite author would be, Beijing author would be Lao Xie, Mm -hmm. who is uh, arguably the first Chinese um, to be nominated uh, for Nobel Nobel um, Literature Prize, uh, but then by the time he was nominated, he killed himself. Literally thrown himself into the 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 river, uh, the 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 pond that um, you know be, because he was prosecuted so much uh, during the Cultural Revolution, and it was a hor- yeah horrendous. Did like you know the things you you would imagine um, like beyond really beyond the imagination and yeah it was really um sad because um when i was reading lao shua right the night before he killed himself he was so sad from from just pe- the people who harassed him um and he went out of his house and walked all the way to the uh northeast uh the, the northwest corner of Taiping Hu, so the Taiping Lake. And he was wearing like a white t-shirt and a blue pants. And he read the Mao Zedong poetry for like a whole day on the shore. I'm sure by then he was already, you know, mentally uh, not functioning. And he sat all the way to midnight. And that night he jumped into the into the lake and he was only 67. Bazin is the one writer, if not the only, um, to have advocated throughout his life to uh, set up a cultural revolution a museum mm. and also a modern Chinese literature, a modern Chinese culture exam- uh, museum all around the country. And he famously said that uh, each city should have a Chinese culture cultural revolution museum. So that's that's how, yeah, how his life was changed, you know, by the event. But he persisted, you know, he lived all till the 21st century. And if he lived, he lived like even a little bit more years, um, he would have seen kind of the, I guess, the U.S.-China relations and all these, you know, becoming a, China becoming a world power. That's, you know, really so different worlds that he lived in throughout his life. And I remember reading um, some of his essays that he wrote during the time um, the Kuomintang in Republic China, um, going through like um, the Second World War, um, World War II. Um, the Kuomintang also uh, was harsh on censorship and checking on, you know, the, I guess, the liter- literature prison or like that he would be put in so he had to borrow a lot of 
foreign kind of characters, foreign themes to refer as metaphors to refer to the situation he was in, like in China. So he was saying that because I lived in foreign countries and I'm familiar with you know those literature and their characters. So I was able to borrow those to to say what I truly believe in, even though I couldn't say it out loud in like you know Chinese words and Chinese characters. So he borrowed like a lot of European、um, literature characters, like um, mal malpas malpasant. Malpasant. I don't. My friend just said malpasant. Malpasant. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Things like that. So.、Um, Yeah, great, great writing, <laughs> great writer was able to kind of maneuver like whatever he could、um, to to convey his ideas. Yeah, even through. I wonder, like, if Shakespeare, you know, were to be put in China and had to write under the heavy censorships and can't talk about Mao, can't talk about this and that, like, how how would his literature be like? You know. It's, It's gonna be a complete different story. Well, that's an interesting one.、Um, Shakespeare was, I think, somewhat famously a favorite of Elizabeth II. So he was in with the powerful.、Um, I remember when I was working at Shanghai High School、uh, International Division, Shanghai Zhongshui Guojibu.、Uh, mm-hmm. I got called on by a friend of mine who was teaching in the middle school. He's doing Macbeth,、uh, which is the the one about a Scottish.、Uh, The, the Scottish king who kills his rival、uh, tries to take over. Everything goes spoilers. Everything goes wrong, and、um, after a big slaughter, the English arrive to sort of restore order. A bit like how at the end of Hamlet, another、uh, kingdom shows up to sort of put things back in order. And that was、um, that was a sort of a politically interesting thing to do at the time. Because Elizabeth II, the English monarch, had died and was replaced by her only possible heir,、uh, James the Sixth of Scotland, who also at the same time became James the First of England. So that was the time when Scotland and England's not the governments but the royal families merged. So it was an interesting play in that context because it was about. England stepping at the end. England steps in to sort of put Scotland in order right at the time when there's been a fusion there, and it may well have been Shakespeare was sort of using that to sort of please the powers that be or send a message. So I guess he might have known how to keep himself safe. I don't know how much censorship there would have been. There's certainly quite a lot of um, body um, cheeky stuff,、um, sexual stuff in some of the plays, but I guess you couldn't. Who knows that a lot of the his- the histories are about sort of bad kings or good kings. Maybe there's some hidden messaging there that we don't know about, or that scholars would know about that I don't. Despite all that Shakespeare had to do in school, like famously James Joyce, you know Ulysses was banned in the U.S. originally,、mm. right when it went、um, when it was published. But that's completely different from like a lot of the Chinese author situation. It's、yeah. not like You you could write about these things just as you wish, and you can't publish or like be read. In a sense, it's like you cannot write from the beginning, like from the creation kind of period.、Um, you have to avoid this and that. So yeah, oh, oh, it's a、uh, crazy to think about how 
how the authors dodged all these like kind of holes <laughs> in in the system to, yeah. to get to what they want to say. I think trying to think of one example in in the U.S. where that you can see clever things like that is in cinema. Uh, up until the end of the studio system, there was quite—I think it was called the Hayes Code. There was quite、mm-hmm. heavy censorship of lots of things,、uh, political stuff as well as like sexual or social stuff, because it was the Cold War. So you couldn't have anything too commie. So there are interesting examples of like、um, sort of stuff just in those films that's just delivered in dialogue, or it's in clever edits where it's like between the lines. But no, you're right. It's just—it's much more hardcore. In China, be it the Republic of China or the People's Republic, there was a thing I was going to say there about how, like Bajin, his big middle finger to his oppressors was like surviving, keeping going. And I think it's kind of depressing that if you go looking for commentary on him in English, you get a lot of stuff from like the later decades of the 20th century when he was an old man, sort of、mm. poking him about、um, dissidents or people questioning the system. There's、um, an essay、um, which w- was up on Doban actually. I think it used to be up on、uh, a quite good Western site called、uh, or Westerners in China sort of website Danway, but that that webpage is down. So this thing existed on Doban, funnily enough. So I copied and pasted into a Google Doc just in case it gets taken off Doban. But it's called Dissenting from Bajin, and it's by Jeremy R. Barme. Again, don't really know how to say French names,、um, mm-hmm. but he's a big Was or is a major sinologist in the West, and this thing is about how he established a bit of a relationship with Bajin, and initially thought he was very cool, but got more and more fed up with Bajin because Bajin wasn't speaking out about like crackdowns in eighties China, and、mm. he does at the end say maybe I was too harsh on the guy, but as I'm reading this, I'm like Jeremy, you asshole! Like,、mm. think of everything Bajin's been through. Surely he must have known. And like、mm. to expect the guy to speak his mind when, never mind like if the stakes are high or not, but how much trauma the guy's endured. It seems like like I was saying where like as a younger man, Bajin felt guilt about demanding young people to fight and potentially die while he's just a writer. It's this, and I think I find it really annoying when Westerners do this when they sort of expect people like Bajin to do the, you know. Put themselves on the line for someone else's political、uh, fantasies. It's annoying. It's sad it's, to see a smart guy being so, you know, thinking of Chinese writers as chess pieces on a board. It's annoying. I I agree. I I think that this kind of thing, like,、um, it's it's not it's not fair to judge Bajin in a sense, but. It can come from Bajin himself. You know, you could you could say you could quote Bajin, quote Bajin and say, you know, Bajin、uh, did feel af- afterward, after the、uh, years after the Cultural Revolution, and that he regretted、um, that he didn't kind of stand up enough to the to the system, and he kind of、um, said things that are that weren't, you know, what he really felt, and、um, he. He thinks that you know he regretted that period, but you know, as someone who is not him, who didn't go through that,、um, it's not it's not quite right to to judge in that way. Yeah. But, but again, you know, it's it's、uh, 
it's always complicated to to think about an author that's even just a few decades before the time that we grow up in,、mm. because yeah, just because you you can't even imagine like living through the Cultural Revolution. I can't,、uh, obviously, but、um, yeah. And with with Batsin, I feel his writings are、um, you know different later on.、Uh, not not different in the sense that like he was not. Um, writing what he wanted, but his best work is—I I personally feel—is his earlier、uh, pieces of fiction.、Mm. So,、um, you are asking about、um, if I could suggest a Chinese word of the day. Oh yeah, we can do that now. Yeah. Yeah, I would just say "jia," which is his、uh. <laughs> work,、uh, which means family. And、um, if you look really closely to the. To the structure of this this letter, this word itself, you see it has a top that looks like a you know like a roof,、mm-hmm. and then underneath that roof is this is this character that is that means pig because、uh-huh. the yeah that is the character for pig actually、mm, for it, it used to be like、right. you know ancient time, and because in the past. Uh, what makes up a family is like a household, and you have, you know, farm animals like pig underneath the roof. So it's a house, a lunch, and a dinner, sort of in the bank there inside the pig. Yeah, exactly. And then、um, his other two famous is it makes up his trilogy.、Um, is besides the family is also the spring、um, called Chun, and then autumn Chiu. Mm-hmm. The Chun and Chiu are each、um, each a、uh, piece of fiction themselves, and together they are a trilogy. And then he has like a few trilogies, which I thought was cool.、Mm-hmm. Um, I I'm really bad. I I haven't really read through all his like works,、um, but this trilogy should be the one that people would start with if you just want to read like one work of his. Right. Yeah, I realize we've totally abandoned the original sort of structure of questions I set up. So I'm gonna, <laughs> I'll keep us talking about his other books or about this trilogy, which the it's interesting. The blurb on this book, which is it's、um, it's all in I think it's all in Helvetica. It's very sort of sixties, seventies style English book design,、um, but it mentions that this trilogy, the English it's translated the English name as Turbulent Stream. I forget how the original Chinese goes, but yeah, the Turbulent Stream trilogy. But if you're reading in English, you'll just have to be stuck with the first book, I think. Sorry, <laughs> I'm really, I'm really scatterbrained here. I'm going all over the place, but I want to、oh, re- rewind to school because、um, you said you encountered his little mini essays early on in school. But how about、uh, later on, like as a high school student or university student, or just as an adult, like? Has he cropped up again and again, or is he like a nostalgia trip back to when you were nine and ten?、Mm, so unfortunately, I think Batin was not considered, even though he is important, but he's not considered a popular popular、um, writer in a sense.、Um, even in I think Chinese、uh, universities, you would often learn more about say Lu Xun.、Mm. 
and even like、uh, Ding Ling and all these other writers because their writings are more you could dig up more meaning or like philosophy out of it. And Bajin's words are you know a lot of times it's kind of plain. You know you could analyze the the characters and say oh they are、um, they're. Their the characters are suppressed because of like the feudalism system and all that,、mm. but you could get to like some extent, but not more. And there's certainly a disconnect also in the way that he's、um, received outside of China and how he was received inside China. I think in 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 China he's still quite famous. But then I've never really heard of him outside of you know in the literary、um, circles outside of China.、Mm. Uh, perhaps because his plots are very much like unique to the time and space that you know Bazin was in,、mm, and obviously like much Western、um, readers and writers. Um, didn't live through and wasn't really interested in like、um, the Cultural Revolution or like Republic China, and so it's hard to kind of get started.、Um, and quite honestly, I, I don't think there is anything wrong with with you know that he is a bit kind of a、um, I guess not neglected but like overlooked, overlooked unique unique writer in the sense outside of China. But I still encourage、um, everyone to give him a read, and just as you said, you know, from that short essay like Hong Kong Night, you could just kind of feel so much、um, sentiments、mm. just reading it and like、um, empathize with him in so many ways. And I think readers from say Denmark could also read something out of it. It might not be anything that Bazin would himself have like related or talked about, but this is the magic or the the like effect of of a good literature. It's like you could feel anything, and out of it, you could you could have a way of interpretation, interpreting it、um, to make it your own story, kind of. And Bazin famously.、Um, When he was talking about how Tolstoy writes, and he thinks that,、um, you know, Bazin says, when I was doing the writing, you know, I don't know what my character would say five minutes later, <laughs> and I just kind of follow them. I am this this sneaky guy behind them, and I I follow whatever they they're doing, and then I'm not like Maldun or other writers that I write up an outline. Uh, my, you know, my custom, my habit is that I vomit my life experiences and my my emotions all the way onto onto the paper, and I focus on this character's destiny and and how they think, and I, yeah, and I I kind of debunk the old system and what I don't like through these characters. So, yeah, I think that's what. Makes Bazin interesting, probably to the foreign readers. I think Denmark was a good choice for Hong Kong Nights because if you look at the、uh, Denmark on a map, a little bit like <laughs> Hong Kong, it's a peninsula with lots of little islands, just on a much larger、yeah. scale. So maybe、yeah. some Danish people who live on the little islands, or like I could think of my own country, the west coast of Scotland is is similar. If you live on those islands, you got to be 
traveling on boats sometimes, although you probably couldn't fit a mega city onto lots of those islands. Um, but yeah, the thing of like departing somewhere from a boat, it does have a magic and he captured it. And it sounds like, like he's, like you were saying there, someone who's just following the flow of a story doesn't know where their pen is, what's going to be coming out of the pen in five minutes. And someone who seems to, I, I'm, I'm just totally imagining here, but having done some writing myself and having done closely planned cold writing, and also writing like this, following characters. When, I'm, when I was doing the style work with a longer form story, following characters, especially younger ones, I got the feeling I wanted to befriend them and that I could feel sympathy for them. And reading family, like I get that feeling that apart from maybe some of the older characters who are just assholes, like the granddad, uh, or in the book, um, he seems, yeah, he seems like he, he cares about the writers. Don't know where yeah. I'm going with that. Um, there was one other thing about other stuff you've read uh, or his reputation inside China that I don't know if I'm asking the right person here, but I noticed that there's some film adaptations and I think possibly TV adaptations of his works. Mm-hmm. And that makes me think of Dream of the Red Chamber again, Hong Lo Meng, because Hong Lo Meng, I think is kind of famous to a lot of people in its some of its TV and film adaptations. This thing's so friggin' long that like it's almost made for TV in a way, all these little episodes. And it's easy for me to imagine family being like a sort of a TV drama as well. But anyway, but to the point, have you heard about any of these adaptations or watched them or? Yeah, actually, a lot of them are. So Jia Chunxiu, what I talked about, mm. family, spring, autumn, together they're the trilogy of love. So love right. trilogy. And each of them have been adapted different times into uh, films and the earliest one was like 1940 something mm. and like the, the trilogy was adapted into into movies uh, a lot of his works have been adapted into tv series as, as well so family autumn and another one called hanye so like cold night oh, yeah. um it's adapted into a film but the characters, again, are all very like, you know, from socialist China, mm. uh, socialists kind of environment. And um, um, it's always about like a family where the, the kids are kind of um, kind of suppressed in a sense, like frustrated and they want kind of freedom out of, out of the you know, the struggle and how, how their struggle works and, and all this. So a foreign reader, I would say, like, first read up a little bit on the, the history of, of modern China yeah. around the time and then read the characters and you would understand a lot more. If I could zap myself back in time to when I was starting this podcast, learning a lot more about the new, uh, the new culture movement and Lushun, I would mm-hmm. say... I got I find it pretty interesting like I, I I know that for people who've done like a China studies degree or have known about this for a long time this isn't so interesting this is like some of the basic stuff you learn early on but for me I'd had a little bit of exposure to that history in Shanghai but reading the stuff was really fun for me and I think I said already uh, family although the story itself is kind of simple reading it as sort of a metafiction window into what it was like being a reader of magazines like New Youth at the time, these new mm. cultural, uh, new culture movement 
magazines, May, May 4th magazines, from that perspective as like literary history is really mm-hmm. interesting. And the other thing that seems like an angle you could take to write your undergraduate essay on it would be comparing it to Dream of the Red Chamber. I, I know I keep bringing that up, but to be more specific, like we're in a big family compound. Our main character is a sensitive young man. He seems to be falling in a, into a doomed romance. But the thing that makes this a, a 20th century leftist book is that it's a romance with one of the servant girls. It's not with another rich girl. Mm-hmm. Although we, there are other love stories with like one of the other young men, one of his brothers seems to be in love with his cousin or something. Yeah. <laughs> so we have those old feudal <laughs> things there as well. Um, so Sometimes I hate reading this kind of story. Yeah. It's like, how, there are many women like out there, <laughs> you know, many men out there. <laughs> Don't just try to kill each other off for like one woman or another. Like, times are different. Yeah. But, yeah. Yes, they are. <laughs> what would they say with Tinder? You know, if they had Tinder, <laughs> none yeah. of these things, would, none of them would struggle at all. <laughs> you would have gone for more walks outside the family compound, at least, to, yeah. to go on the dates. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah that was I think that's why I didn't pick the book up at that time was like I got so fed up of Hong No Mong about after about a third of the way through and I figured more family sagas like no I can't be bothered with it <laughs> although I w- the other thing I'd say is this edition there's some things I can say about this edition I might I might go on for a while here but like this is relevant to like his his reception outside China because it seems like there was a wave of interest around this time, maybe like 60s, 70s in him. This edition is published by Chung and Sui. They're based somewhere in the US, but obviously you know, those are Chinese names. And it says on the back, it says C&T, so Chung and Sui Asian Literature Series. And I thought, oh, awesome. Does that mean there's a whole line of them? Um, oh, they're in, the company's a Boston company, by the way. So East Coast of the States, Chinese mm-hmm. publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I thought great. Does that mean they had a whole line of these like sixties and seventies translated Chinese fiction editions? But when I googled it, uh, one there doesn't seem to be many books. This this line is completely transformed, and it seems like even back then most of it was nonfiction. It seems mm-hmm. like maybe they wanted to do the whole trilogy of of the books, but it, it never happened. Mm-hmm. So it seems to be an outlier in that most of the books in the series are like textbooks or collections of essays or something so for Bajin his writing journey was like he stopped writing fiction after the cultural revolution yeah well the magic of translation you can resurrect the books like there's Mm -hmm. nothing to stop Penguin going back and doing doing the whole thing in English and giving giving it a lovely new cover by the way if any publishers are listening do it um, <laughs> yeah. just market the guy as a Chinese anarchist it's an easy sell really yeah. easy pitch um, I'd buy it at least you'd have one customer um, <laughs> so, me too I would yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, and give it to all my friends <laughs> oh the one other thing I was going to say about the book and the publication is it's got a really convoluted publication history and it's reflected in all the intro- intros because there it stays on the cover intro by the translator but actually there is an intro by her. There is a thing right at the start, which is a note from Chung and Sui, who tell you that this translation is not one they commissioned themselves. They, oh, so, sorry, I've confused myself. Olga Lang isn't the translator. Sydney Shapiro is the translator. 
And Sidney Shapiro was a guy living in the PRC, working for one of the big Beijing presses as a translator. He's like, there is a translation institute in Qingdao uh, dedicated to him. He's like a friend of communist China who stayed there doing all this literary work. So this translation originally came out through, oh yeah, Foreign Languages Press in Beijing. Uh, so it's a, it's a PRC produced translation, but that edition was like meddled with, Pit, bits were chopped out to like censor it. So most of the translation is from that edition, but then an American edition by a publisher called Anchor Books brought in those deleted parts of the text um, and retranslated it by a, a Chinese uh, guy called Lu Kuang Huan. And then to make it even more complicated, Chong and Sui bought the rights for the book from Anchor Books and they've all left um, their own little notes. So there's an intro from Chong and Sui. Beneath that, there's the intro from uh, Foreign Languages Press, which is really funny because it's, it's very sort of, um, what's the word, uptight and like mm. Mao's China style writing. It's like, Bajin was good because he tried to destroy the old society, but he made certain mistakes. Here's what they mm. are, blah, 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 blah. So you have that. Then there's Olga Lang's intro. But then after that, there are intros to various editions from Bajin because he changed it a few he changed the Chinese version a few times he like improved some of the prose and stuff it wasn't political mm -hmm. stuff he just wanted to make some technical improvements so there's those and there's also a dedication from Bajin to his brother one of his brothers I think died young or something and mm -hmm. that brother is sort of appears as a character in the book so like just as a piece of crazy publishing history the intros of this book are something of themselves. They're like an archaeological dig, all these layers built on top of one another. So yeah, I yeah. sorry for going on so long. No, no. I mean, I took a, a book, uh, the history of book kind of um, class. And uh, history of book is like, you know, along with intellectual history, along with like uh, history of philosophy, history of philosophy and all these like you know genres like it's like part of the general like um history of ideas kind of categories and and um but unfortunately when I took it at Columbia I was taught by the librarian at Columbia and just all the works were um the western um anglophone western canon and not a single book was from say like uh, not even not even Scottish, like I think UK literature, Brit British, yeah, right. but Anglo. not even like Spanish literature or or Chinese, let alone like Chinese Japanese literature or Indian, more, like, African, yeah, Russian. None, none. Just uh, very much following, you know, 16th century, like from mm. you know, the Bible and uh, Milton, all these, you know, big ones. And which which is fine, but. If there is like more international kind of way of approaching a history of books, it will be so much more interesting. But mm. then again, you can't accept, accept um, you can't expect the students to be familiar with like Iranian literature <laughs> if they grew up in say like Southern Ohio. You know, where are they gonna? You know, they've never even seen a Iranian person in their whole life. Yeah, and Americans are famously bad at knowing where other countries are on the map. Uh, yeah, so you have the you have to 
be like searching for the people who are like highbrow intellectuals who are cosmopolitan at the same time it's like impossible <laughs> but yeah if, if it's if that class is more like kind of international that would be nice and the, the thing that studying translated chinese books turned my attention to was paratext um which is that's the term for everything in a book that's not the story, basically. So the cover, any intros or outros or footnotes, because those become, I think, extra important in translated lit. Uh, I think I've talked about that on the show before. I could talk about that for an hour, but I won't. I thought I could move us on to the more lighthearted questions, unless there's anything else you want to get out there. I guess I would, uh, again, say that if um, I would direct the readers, the listeners to the book Jia, um, mm. family, the family. And uh, again, Ba Jin thinks it is his best work. So you should read it. I, I, you, I know you prepared a lot of notes, so I'm sure you're ready for this one. If you could pair any piece of music to Hong Kong Nights, uh, the story that we read, what would it be? So it would be uh, it's famous, very famous. She's very famous. Um, um, Chinese singer Deng Li Jun's um, her singing and the just because the song's name, Google Career sorry I wanted to forget um, let me let me play it uh, it's just called Hong Kong Night so exact same title oh perfect play it for like five seconds. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I'll send the link to you and you can oh, share you. with the, the audience. And um, yeah, Deng Lijun is also very interesting. She's a very interesting character. If you want to search more on her, um, my friend actually at uh, Columbia wrote a whole PhD thesis on her. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and wow. Her music. So like, at least 150 pages of stuff. Um, yeah. And Aside from the name of the song, what made you pick it? I guess it's also just the the lyrics kind of conveys a sense of hopefulness that I see also in the in Bajin's essay itself. Yeah, but mostly just because um, I like the song and I like the I like the singer, so I thought, oh, good to share her with the world. And she is quite a phenomenon. If, if we were to talk about how important she is, Deng Li Jun, um, to like the, you know, to China, it'd be at the same level of Ba Jin's like status in like literary history. Okay, it's a perfect match. Okay. Um, <laughs> the song I've chosen, it's kind of just a song I really want to find any excuse to push. Uh, that I was listening to around the time I was writing the questions for this interview we've just had. But um, I think in the context of talking about Bajin's life, the hardship he faced, and the fact, you know, he's passed into 
the next place, whatever it might be, not that long ago, just 2005. I think this song is quite poetic. It might, it might make me sad again, but this is a beautiful song uh, or track. It's called Hieroglyph. It's by a progressive metal band, although it doesn't sound like metal at all, called Cynic. Yeah. And I'd like to play the whole thing. I think that would get a bit awkward. It's, it's, it is short, but I won't inflict the whole thing on you, Tianqi, but I'll, I will read the lyrics because it's just six lines. Mm-hmm. And I'll try and mimic the vocalist that they, it's not the band singer that reads this. They've got a woman uh, reading it a bit like a piece of spoken word. Mm-hmm. So I will try and mimic her a little bit, but I won't overdo it because it would be really cheesy. But it goes something like this. He's been blown to all corners of the universe. His eyes go back into eternity. His mouth an endless black hole. Everything rushing into freedom. No walls, no specific personality. His whole being an explosion into infinity. So some of that's not really relevant to Ba Jim, but I think some of it really is. And I think it's all captures Hong Kong nights, or a lot of it captures Hong Kong nights. And I, I was going to say earlier, when we were talking about the life, the, the, the attitude to life Ba Jin had as a young man, you might think he was going to be the kind of guy who would burn bright and then you know, live too much, too fast, too quick, die young kind of a guy. But no, he made it to 105. And even if he did burn out, like he kept going. Um, mm. It's kind of beautiful. But anyway, I'll stop, I'll stop rambling on and I'll play a little bit of this song um, down through the microphone for you. It's a very cool cover of the, of the yeah. song. Yeah, yeah, because it's hard to tell what it is. It looks like a cell, the inside of a cell. This looks like one of those, um, like very, um, what do you call, very niche band. Kind of, yeah. They're weird as well. They had an album in the 90s and then they like vanished until like the late, mid 2000s. And they're very peculiar for a metal band. Two of the four members, I think, were, um, were gay men. It's not common in metal, I don't think. And two of them have passed away over the last few years after the band kind of split and one guy kind of returned and made this absolutely beautiful ambient, mostly ambient album. Um, And the songs have always had this sort of transcendent feeling of like an an alien or an angel looking down on earth. And the fact he wrote that album after two of them passed away, I don't know, that makes me emotional too. It's just an emotional evening for me. Mm. 
The song makes me wonder if that's what it's like to be a ghost. No specific personality. You're just everywhere. And mm -hmm. if you could wish that on anyone from history, I think authors, pure-hearted authors like Bajin are people yeah. it would be nice to think are still with us in some way. Mm. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy who'd be like, okay, I'm dead. I don't care anymore. I feel like he'd be checking in on us. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay. On that note, <laughs> the bonus question for Patreon subscribers. Uh, if you were going to meet Bajin, whether it's going back in time to any part of history or meeting his ghost, what would you say to him? Yeah, I've been reading actually uh, recently, apart from if if we're to jump out of Bajin now, talking about Go like <laughs> authors in general that I, I've been interested in recently. It's uh, um, I've been reading these two novels and both are female writers. One is called Fiona and Jane. It's by a Asian, I think Chinese American writer, Jean Chen Ho. And another okay. one is Olga Dies Dreaming by um, Exol Chitty Gonzalez. I'm quite excited for both of the works and I will, you know, send you their names and the, the titles. And Oh, thank you. Yeah. For, for readers to, if you're interested, to keep up with my reading. <laughs> Excellent. Jump, jump suddenly to 2021, 2022. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, scary i often think oh i'm doing such a good job reading books but then i think how many am i reading a month like on a good month maybe three but sometimes it takes almost a whole month for me to read a book like family family's not huge but um i'm not reading dozens of pages every single day and when you think about it, if you're only reading one or two a month that's not a huge number every year and you only live so many years we don't all live as long as um as people like Bajin. so yeah <laughs> Well, you speak for yourself. I'm going to live at least 100 years. <laughs> You're drinking more hot water than me, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would just say that, you know, like uh, podcasting is, is really fun for me. Um, but when I go back to like the 18th century and talk about like this and that classical Chinese tale, at the same time, I, I keep reminding myself, like I live in 2022 and these <laughs> are the books that are debut novels from these, you know, excellent writers, young writers, just 20 something, 30 something. And this is like what just published, got published last week. Like, you know, kind of keeping those two realities um, both in my, in my like reading, um, reading list. So it's very important to, to keep reminding yourself like where, where you are. Totally. It's disorienting times to say the least. Mm, exactly. What's COVID? <laughs> Time is still playing tricks on us all, I think. I'll, I'll rattle off my recommended uh, reading slash books I'm reading right now. So obviously the one I'm reading right now is a Bajin book, but two relevant books I've read recently have been nonfiction. Uh, I think these are books Bajin would want you all to read. Mm -hmm. uh, they're both sort of like brief introductions to topics from a series. Um, you know, when publishers do these little compact series of books all in the same format. Yeah. One's from Oxford University Press. They have these series called An Introduction to Blah Blah. I've got three of them, uh, mm -hmm. two in print, one is an ebook. The two I've got in print are Chinese lit and uh, typography, but this one is... Oh, I didn't know the... they have the Chinese lit one. Oh, yeah. It's by uh, oh, Sabina Knight, who's a listener of the show and very active on Twitter. 
uh, it's a pretty good little book, although you've got a degree in this stuff, so it might just be a refresher for you rather than any grand revelations. But yeah, anyway, uh, the meaning of life one, it's a very philosophical sort of topic, obviously, but also the question of meaning of life is not a, like a hard technical philosophical question. It's one philosophers are often making fun of as much as they're taking seriously. And the writer Terry Eagleton treats it very playfully, which strikes me as a sort of a badge in style, like a, a little bit of a light, friendly approach. But um, Terry Eagleton is a Marxist. So he's from that sort of radical lefty tradition. And that perspective is mm -hmm. in the writing as well. Um, so, and it's a, it's a fun read. It's quite funny. Terry Eagleton's a bit of a prankster. So for that mischievous spirit, that mischievous leftist literary writing, you, you all could pick that up if that interests you. And the other one is also, it's not written strictly from a lefty perspective, but it's social class in the 21st century, an introduction. And it's a Pelican book, which are uh, a nonfiction branch of Penguin that handles kind of like difficult or serious nonfiction factual books. And it's mostly looking at class as it appears class and inequality as they appear in the UK in the 21st century. And it's it was a really good eye-opener and it caused some introspection in me because although I'm not from the elite of Scotland, the, well, the elite of the elite in Scotland or England, it did make me reflect on privileges I've had in life and the way they manifest in like cultural tastes. Like me, the child of a doctor, having a literature podcast it's not that surprising, really. But like Bajin, I think it's something I'm self, I've am self. i always been self-aware of, but the book made me more self-aware of that. But also it's a reminder that Bajin wasn't a guy looking 100 years back in the past like we're doing right now. He was thinking and writing about social problems in his own country, in his own time. And I find like looking for political topics online or in real life, in the media, everything, it's like America has a great big magnet over it, mm. especially on the internet. Um, so it was interesting for me to read about problems in the UK, which as much as I talk about being Scottish, I'm living in England and I am a UK citizen and the problems in England are not that different from the problems in Scotland. So it was interesting to get, get a very serious technical look at how inequality and capitalism and society and the economy all feed into each other in the UK. So I guess British listeners or anyone interested in these problems in a Western, especially UK context, is not the most fun read, but it's pretty enlightening, I think. So I think Bajin would want you to read that. He'd also be pushing for whatever the equivalent book is for the PRC. I don't know if that would be an easy book mm -hmm. to get your hands on, whether or not mm -hmm. that's a sensitive topic, I don't know. But yeah, that's what I've been reading, that and that and this nice paperback of family. I think that's all the that's all the plugs, all the promotion for other books I could possibly do. I would do more Bajin stuff, but aside from some, actually there's, yeah, there's a Bajin resource for people who want to read some of his stuff in English. It's um, a little anarchist, uh, some, I guess an individual, because anarchists don't form groups. Some guy has made a little anarchist library <laughs> online, which has links to, it has the link to this uh, re translation of Hong Kong Nights that we read. And it has some of the essays I mentioned as well. So I'll put that link in the show notes. But yeah, it's a, a good thing about anarchists is they're quite happy to put stuff online for free for people to read because that's what they believe in, open access. So yeah, that's all for me. Um, Tianchi, is there anything else, anything else at all that you want to say? 
I would uh, shamelessly plug uh, <laughs> my podcast again because the last episode I did uh, was on uh, this Chinese feminist author, um, and she happens to be an anarchist as go. well. Uh, she lived in the um, early 20th century, and she didn't know Batin, but you know they they share the same sentiments, and she has you know some of the most most interesting ideas. Um, that are still very relevant today. So I highly recommend you go on my podcast <laughs> to check sure. her out. You all, you all <laughs> should because there's, it's not like my show where everything has to be about like a book and author. It's quite an interesting range of topics you hit on. Yeah, we actually like the there aren't so many. So Chinese literature is very much of a niche podcast. You know, arena, but、um, surprisingly, that we all covered different things.、Mm -hmm. Actually, I think what's going to happen is it'll be like the, the May Fourth intellectuals, the most organized group, are going to eventually crush all of us and take over. I think it's going to be <laughs> the two Moors from the Chinese Literature Podcast. That's that's like Mao and Joe. They're going to come for us. They do have a PhD. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> but no, they're the all the all the shows out there are good. And you, you should all definitely listen to Tianqi's. <laughs> thank you, and thank you so much again for for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming、I、back on. I'm I'm glad、Yay. that we could talk about such a fun author and such a fun little story. It was. Yeah, I should、uh, do another mega podcast with with the two mores and other.、People. Yes, well, just wait till I think when it gets to 100, I have to do the same again, but it make it more of a party. Yeah, sounds good. All right, we are nearing the end of the episode now. So thank you again to Tianqi for coming on. What a fantastic chat that was! I always say that, and you know what? I always mean it. That that was a fun one for sure. Great to have a returning guest on. I'm gonna. Well, the other thing I always say I'm gonna do is speed through these outros and the plugs.、Uh, the one I really want to push this time is reviews. If if you're a Apple Podcast listener, review or a five star rating. Hell, even a four star rating there would be amazing. Five stars, though, please. Seriously, just anything that will help kind of put us up the search results on the table, the, the ranking tables. That would be nice. It'd be a way to get more people listening to the show. That's the goal.、Uh, if you're listening on Android, I think Google Podcasts would be a good one. But anything you can do on whatever, through whatever means you listen. Reviews, ratings—it's it's great, and I don't think we've had many or any for a while. So more would be great to see.、Um, aside from that,、uh, the show social media. So it's all linked in the show notes, pretty much. But me on Twitter—that's at Angus Likes Words. The show has its own Instagram account at, at Trichofic T R C H F I C, and we have a Discord where I stuff probably that's probably a particularly good place these days to get info on like what's coming up.、Uh, when possible, I'm offering listeners a chance to jump in and sit in on interviews. I do.、Um, I'll put invite links in the Discord. Similarly, sometimes when I'm hanging out, I'll jump into the voice channel there. Well, I say hanging out. If I'm like editing the episode art, I might sit in the voice channel in case anyone wants to chat. So. Like that's all there too. That there's a Patreon as well. There are about as many bonus episodes now as there are main episodes. They tend to be about half an hour long and solo for the most part. But that's still hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of extra stuff that you can get from one USD a month. Hell, you could sign up for one month for one dollar, download the whole lot, and flee, and it would still be a dollar. 
funding this show so who would i be to complain so yeah uh, that is all best thing you can do for the show as always is not financial or digital it's to tell people tell your friend tell your teacher tell your dog and tell your equal and autonomous fellow members of your local anarchist collective which if you're anything like Bajin, you won't have joined because you're even too anarchist anarchist for that so on that note Zaijian. Oh,